Amen. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, crack it open, turn or tap your way to Proverbs. We're going to be jumping around, but Proverbs is the book we'll be in today as we continue our series on Proverbs. I don't know if you saw in the pictures, I did get to go to middle school camp, and it was fantastic. Uh, I grew up going to camp every year. We were very excited to kind of get that part of Hope Church online this year. I can't wait for your children to go to camp. I can't wait for you to go to camp. Next year, we're going to need leaders. Uh, You'll have to get in line after me, but you should go to camp. It was an incredible time. I'm going to talk about why a little bit in the um, looking at what's in Proverbs today, but I'm hoping that you will do as well as my middle school boys did at listening to what I'm saying. You might even do better. I mean, not, a, not every Sunday do you do better, but you might even do better. Listening to what we're going to kind of process. Those boys, uh, you know, they're middle school boys. They were having a good time. Little Daniel's in the back cheering me on. Uh, we had a great time exploring together some of the thoughts that God's given to his people when it comes to understanding who we are. I don't know, it seems a little new agey, maybe it seems a little like uh, individualistic and, and against scripture to be really focused on who you are, to be introspective. It seems, I don't know if you're like me, but it seems like the Bible is supposed to kind of get you outward focused, focused on others, focused on service, focused on God, focused on kind of moving the ball forward when it comes to the mission of God. And yet, If you actually get into the nitty-gritty about what Scripture says, it's talking constantly about you, about your understanding of you. The theme for high school camp was take heart. It's God's grand command to Joshua as he's going to lead the people of Israel to conquer Canaan. And he says, take heart. That is a command that God gives to Joshua to say, before you obey in the way that you get out there and do what I'm calling Israel to do, begin with understanding yourself before me. We're going to do the same thing because in Proverbs, it's giving us a very clear picture of us. I want you to take a minute and do a little bit of a self-evaluation. If you have a physical problem and it continues, eventually you go see a physician. When Jesus came, he spoke to the Pharisees and said, listen, guys, you know, a doctor doesn't come for the healthy, he comes for the sick. And the irony, the kind of hidden barb in that statement was, you Pharisees think you're well, but you're not. And hey, we understand if your body starts to break down, that's, that's your signal to go talk to a doctor and try to get it figured out. Well, if your life starts to break down, where do you go? The Proverbs is given us wisdom because Proverbs is saying, if you're foolish, come and receive the right way to do life. Come and receive God's prescription for you to have life, riches, and honor, not just in this world. Even though, again, if you follow the Proverbs, those things will be present and increasing in your life to some degree. But in the world to come, in the capital sense of life, being with him forever telling you, if if your knee starts to hurt and continues to hurt, eventually you go talk to an orthopedist. If your life starts to hurt, we got to start looking at why. You start to see that there's a lot of anger in there. 
We've been talking about this stop exercise as a way to be a little introspective in the course of your day, where you just stop, you take a couple of breaths, you observe, and then you just go about your day. You proceed. If you've been doing that, then maybe you started to uncover in your own life a certain, a certain pattern. You know, every time I ask myself how I'm feeling, the word blank comes up. Anger. Fear. Anxiousness. Ooh. <laughs> Worry. Why am I always experiencing these painful emotions? Is God maybe telling me that my heart is broken? Every week we talk about that at Hope Church, that we have one thing in common, that we're broken people. And you can say that in sort of a platitudinous way. That's not how we're saying it. We're saying that in a very specific, almost technical way. We're saying your heart is broken and we can tell you why. We can tell you how it's broken. We can show you the results of that brokenness. It's followed this pattern of constant going to other things for who you are and then watching as that that pattern is producing this awful deadly fruit. Or choose this. We can show you the right way, that we can show you how to heal your heart and put it back together. And the Proverbs gives us this beautiful picture of it as it talks about this battle. It's a battle between the constant pull towards wisdom and towards foolishness. The, the, the picture of the book is a wise father walking with his son and showing him the world and telling him what's going to happen if he follows foolish practices or wise ones. And the son is feeling that pull back and forth. Proverbs 7, he says, Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call insight your intimate friend in order to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. You have the dad and you have wisdom that are calling to the son, but you also have the, the idiots, the fools, and that adulterous woman. And they've got smooth words. They've got temptations to pull that son in. Where will he go? What will he do? Where will you go? What will you do? As we go through the series, we're going to make the case. We want to understand how to say no to those temptation things, those awful things that continue to break us down and pull us apart. He says at the very beginning in Psalm 110, uh, Proverbs 110, he says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Amen. Of course, amen. That's not really the question. The question is, how? If you've got enough humility to have identified in your life sinful practice, regular foolishness, like institutionalized foolishness, it's just there every morning, every day, every night. The question isn't, what is it, where is it? The question is, how do I stop? Well, it's a little bit startling. The wisdom of the Scripture goes against... Our culture, it kind of goes against maybe even what we would think in an honest way. But the wisdom of Scripture says, well, stop trusting your own mind. Here's what I mean by that. It's what it says. Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Every now and again, my accent gets 
like pronounced. Uh, it happens a lot with my own name, which is unfortunate, because my name is Ben, B-E-N, but I don't say it that way. I usually say Ben, like with an I and then an extra E in there somewhere. It can get lots of syllables if I'm not careful. And a lot of times people think I'm saying Dan, which is my dad's name, and again, not very helpful. Uh, and then maybe people just don't remember my name, and, and I'm assuming that I mispronounced it. But, but when I say the word fool, my accent comes back, because I've heard that word, and I've heard it like with a hammer blow. He's just a fool. Now, that word doesn't have an L, but yet it lands a little harder in my own heart. So if you hear it today and you're thinking, what's a foo? No, I'm saying fool, <laughs> but I'm saying it with my own kind of uh, vigor. You trust your own mind? What does he say about you? He says you are a fool. Why? If you go to the first part of Proverbs where we've been kind of living as we're progressing through and thinking about this book, he says, be not wise in your own eyes. But fear the Lord and turn away from evil. I want you to understand it, and so that you can feel the sort of grind of this idea against the way that we've been brought up. He's saying, don't trust your own chain of reasoning, don't trust your own justifications or thoughts, trust God's instead. What that's saying is, don't trust reason. Trust God. Now, isn't that what everybody outside of the church is saying about us? That we have blind faith, meaning that we shut our eyes to facts and information and instead choose to just blindly follow the authoritarian word of God? Well, they can say that if they want to. But let me counter this way. Have you ever tried to reason with a toddler about why they shouldn't have more candy? How's that work out for you? Who's the idiot in that scenario? <laughs> There's a problem. We have a problem. I don't know if you've heard the phrase, the heart wants what it wants. Have you heard that before? Kind of depends on your age, what you're going to associate it with. If you're a little bit younger, you might hear it better as the heart what, what, wants what it wants. Uh, 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 uh. Do you know that one? Selena Gomez, 2014. David did not know it. I did not know it. It came up in a Google search. So again, I'm classed out of that as well. I noticed that with camp. 25-year-old uh, Ben was a lot more fun at camp than 35-year-old Ben was, you know? So I didn't get that reference either. But Selena Gomez, poor little thing, in 2014 was heartbroken. I don't know what her situation was. Some horrible boy situation. And, and she came out with this song. She was able to turn her pain into art. And she said, the heart what's, wants what it wants. She wanted this guy and he broke her heart, but she still kind of wants him because the heart wants what it wants. Do you see what she's saying? My heart wanted something that my reason tells me not to go after. Now, if you're a little bit older, or maybe a little bit more in the news, you might remember that phrase more from Woody Allen. Woody Allen, American filmmaker, very critically acclaimed for a long time. And he left his wife to be in a relationship with his wife's adopted daughter, an 18-year-old. Uh, and it was scandalous, obviously. And when confronted... He said, well, the heart wants what it wants. You see what he's saying? 
all convention, all kind of um, hmm, propriety, says, ew. And he responds with, the heart wants what it wants. Now, the scripture is wise enough to understand that concept and to make some sense out of all of this chaos. It says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is desperately sick above all things. I'm sorry, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart wants what it wants? Fine. Stop trusting your heart. That's what the scripture is saying. You know, Disney says that. They say, follow your heart. And the scripture says, don't do that. <laughs> Disney, you're wrong. Please don't teach our children that. And yet, Disney is somewhat understandable. Because if you don't trust that inner sort of constant pull of your own desires, what do you trust to run your life? If you have to trust an external authority, well, the external authorities can conflict with each other. External authorities that you used to trust have kind of turned out to be corrupt, and so you've started to get a little jaded about external authorities. So what's left? Well, one constant is what your own desires are pulling you towards. But if that is what you follow, the Scripture says, death is waiting for you. Here's what Proverbs 1 says. In 11 through 14, he's talking about these young men that are going to come in and they're going to tempt his son to go with them. And he says, if they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, that's the word for hell in the Old Testament, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who do go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. We shall, uh, so he's inviting them now. Throw in your lot among us, and we'll all have one purse. That's a description of the temptation. If we're going to understand that internal sickness enough to start to deny it and then import God's wisdom to upgrade our wisdom, our foolishness into God's wisdom and start to live that wise life. We need to understand that temptation. And he's, he's putting kind of a parenthesis around that temptation. He's describing it well because he's describing the appeal of the temptation. Because in the cold, hard light of a Sunday morning, when you hear this temptation, you go like, who would ever choose that? But in that kind of warm, sultry light of every other day, the temptation is very appealing. And what's the temptation here? He's describing camaraderie. Come be with us. He's describing power. We'll be like hell itself. We'll be able to eat whoever we want without reason. We will be in charge. We'll have this invincibility. And he's describing wealth. We'll all have one purse together, and that purse will be Full, because we'll be taking this money however we, whenever, however we want to. Now, again, you can kind of keep this in this sort of weird abstraction of, I'm reading what the Bible says about I don't know what. Or you can let it penetrate and say, is this in some way resonating in our current world, in my, my own life and society? Well, absolutely. Have you ever seen a commercial for anything that doesn't leverage one of those three Every celebrity endorsement, like Shaq, like I talked about last week, 
is saying, come be like me. Camaraderie. We can use icy hot pads together. (laughs) Come be strong. Come be powerful. Come be impressive. Now, the kids talk about flexing on people. And they'll say, weird flex, because they're talking about, hey, I'm impressed. I'm in, I think you're going to be impressed by my ability to whatever. And you have an internet video about it, and people say, ooh, weird flex. Now, if you're young enough to understand Selena Gomez or younger, you might understand that. For the rest of us, I'm just saying, when they drive up in that car in the commercial, they're not saying, fuel efficiency, are they? When they drive up in that car in that commercial looking unbelievable, they're saying, you too can look unbelievable. You, too, can look better. That's really what they're saying. Not better than you do now, but better than that guy. Ted at the office. You're finally going to look better than Ted. You're finally going to ascend further in your own sort of view, in the world view of you as impressive, powerful. And, of course, get rich. And in a way, getting rich is sort of saying the same thing as that impressiveness. It all comes back to pride. It's this idea that I become greater. And the corollary, he becomes less. Do you see? That's the temptation. Now, if you understand it that way, you can see it all the time, always. It's your heart's constant pull. You have a hard time waking up and spending time in the Word. Why? Because I want to do what I want to do. Well, Why isn't the word what you want to do? Because in the word, I'm being confronted by I am. (laughs) And he is, and, and I'm not. It pops that balloon of self sufficiency. And this temptation, it's coming all the time. It's always trying to pull you in. But if you will follow it, the proverb continues and says, My son, don't walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Did you hear that? It's not just saying that it leads to death. It's describing how. Because it says, yes, this will lead to death. It'll lead to this sort of weird self-sufficiency and pride that rejects God, the only way to life. But it will do it by blinding you to the fact that that's exactly what it's doing. What does he say? He says, in vain do you set a net in the sight of a bird. Because a bird is smart enough to know that's what the net does. So I'm going to go the other way. But the fool runs into the trap. I watched a little short recently, and it was a crab trap. It was a ring that had a rope net on the bottom and on the sides. And in the middle was a part of a fish. And they dropped it. And there was like a GoPro on it or something, so you could film it. And they had a little bit of a time lapse, but it didn't take long. Crabs swarmed this little fish. And they're fighting each other and eating this little dead fish. Until all of a sudden, up comes the rope, up comes the net, and all those crabs are our dinner. What he's saying, though, is that the foolishness of the fool runs into a trap knowingly. 
That's part of what sin does. Old pastors used to say sin makes you stupid. But what they are saying is what Scripture is saying. Sin makes you blind. The Proverbs continue. It says in Proverbs 4, 17 through 19, For they eat the bread of wickedness and they drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of wickedness is like deep darkness. They don't know over what they stumble. Sin has this effect on you of making you numb to the fact that you're choosing death. Just like righteousness and wisdom has this effect on you of showing you more and more, actually helping you to see clearer and clearer why it's good and why it's satisfying. There's a momentum to both. As you choose wisdom, as difficult as that may be, it becomes easier to choose wisdom and to see why you are choosing wisdom. Therefore, you continue to choose wisdom. Just like if you choose wickedness, it has a numbing effect, a blinding effect that allows you to continue despite the pain of what you're doing, which then numbs you further, allowing you to go further along the way to wickedness. Do you see how both of these accelerate into these sort of grand conclusions? Do you wonder why the Bible is so weirdly categorical with either heaven or hell? But don't you see how it has to go to one or the other? So what do we do? Put it back in the context of our original question. What do you do? Well, if all of us, and we are, are on this track, then we have to admit our blindness enough to trust someone else's sight. Which takes us back to our original proverb. I don't want to be foolish enough to trust my own heart, my own understanding. I want to trust the wisdom of God. Have you ever seen uh, an intervention? They used to have TV shows about it because it was such like juicy drama. You have the, the trap. Somebody gets invited by a friend for coffee or somebody gets invited to somebody's house for a birthday and the unsuspecting addict like walks in with a balloon or like a card or something because they think it's going to be a party and instead they see a group of their friends in circle of chairs or couches and they all look sad with coffee and then they shut the door and they say, thank you for joining us today. We love you. We have something we want to talk to you about. And you watch the addict kind of like <laughs> get scared and like figure out what's happening as the, the trap springs. Well, what are they really doing? I mean, yes, they're making juicy TV, but they're also trying to convince the addict by saying, can you trust in our love enough to trust our mind over yours. That's what they're saying. So it's not a group of professionals. It's not a group of psychiatrists or addiction specialists. They may have one there, but the room is made up of people who love that person. Parents, spouses, kids, coworkers. Why? Because the argument is, can you trust our love enough to trust our collective mind over your broken mind. That's the path to change. Can I tell you what's so effective about camp? 
People can think of camp as manipulative, and I understand why they say that. It could be. Can I tell you, there was a way of doing camp where we could have stood up here and said, we took this many to camp, and they all made decisions for Christ. Woo! And everybody goes nuts and turns that little thing that blows the confetti in the air. We could have done that. Why? Because social pressure is impressive. We did not do that. But we still got to feel the pull, the attractiveness of a place where everybody in authority both loves God and loves the camper. And then we spent a week showing those campers how everybody in authority both loves God and loves the camper. And we do that by going out in the sun and playing kickball. And we do that by staying up late at night playing cards. And we do that by going into these worship services and showing, leading them with our excitement for Christ. And it's all of a sudden a new air. They walk into a new atmosphere where they're being led towards wisdom. They still don't get it, but they're being attracted to it. And how? Love. You've heard that phrase, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Listen, change only happens in an environment of love. God's calling you to trust on his wisdom instead of your own, but he's doing it through his one primary argument. His main argument is not just wisdom is wise and foolishness is foolishness. Why would he do that if he knows that part of what foolishness is is that it blinds you to reason? Again, don't reason with a toddler about why they can't have more candy. God doesn't. Yeah, he gives you that wisdom so that when you wake up, you can understand it. But he also chooses to go the real way, the only way to really change people. Do you know that that heart wants what it wants quote is not original to Woody Allen? Say, if you're a certain age, you know it from Selena Gomez, maybe. If you're a certain age, you know it as Woody Allen, maybe. But if you're a certain age and a little bookish, you may know that originally it came from Emily Dickinson. She was that odd sort of reclusive southern poet from Once Upon a Time. And she wrote it in a letter to a friend who was experiencing deep pain because her husband had to be away for a long period of time. And she missed her husband. And Emily was writing this letter, and she was trying to give consolations to her friend who was missing the love of her life. And yet, as Emily's given her these consolations, she stops and says, but I know none of this will work because the heart wants what it wants. There's an aspect to all of this where you say, well, golly, what do we do with a heart that's like a drunk driver? Why would God put this horrible pilot into our ship that's taking us hard against life and towards death? Why would he give us that? Well, because the heart wasn't meant to be that way. Originally, it wasn't driving away from God. It was driving to him. Originally, he built a world where his goodness would be so apparent and so attractive that you would come to him because you wanted him and you would find in him delight. 
not just the cold, hard angles of reason. You would find in him pleasure. And do you understand that biblically, he's now drawing you, not with the cold angles of reason, but with joy, with love. See, the Proverbs are there telling us about the goodness of God, but he's also telling us in the Psalms, Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Do you hear that? That's the prayer of a heart correctly attuned. Being correctly attuned. He's not awake yet, but when he awakes, I I don't see it yet, but I shall behold. He's tasted something that, that is the preview, the appetizer of what will be the feast. He's seen something of the love, of the sacrifice that's pulling him, making him believe in the possibility of, even the the surety of. That full pleasure one day. And where do we see that? Man, it is most clearly, even only seen in the death of Christ for you. Change takes place when you're confident in love. What greater love has any man than this? That he would die for his friends. That's what God did. He could have just let us go. Tearfully, that's what many parents end up having to do. Their children become addicts, and they can't stop them. They can't help them. And eventually, off they go. What he could do and has chosen to do is to come be with us, to come and experience life as us. And then to die the death that we deserve for our sin. Then making a way for us to stand boldly and even um, nakedly in the presence of God. Unashamed, covered only in the righteousness of Christ. Do you understand that the gospel is saying that God has made a sort of camp for you? I had that idea. The reason I want to go back to camp next year is because I want to breathe that air again. And I'm thinking to myself, ha, ah, how do we do this for adults? And then I'm like, I definitely don't want to do this for adults. I don't want to figure that out. I don't want to do all the logistics of it. Hmm, okay, but has God made a way already? Is there already something in the works that we can use to create the same kind of smell for adults to draw them in to what God's done? And the answer, of course, is yes, we have that. We have it in the gospel. And you're being taught the gospel and shown the gospel every week as you come here. You're being presented the gospel and wooed with the gospel every morning when you crack open your Bibles. That's why we're telling you to do this. We're inviting you to do this. We're inviting you to bring that space, that air into your mind, into your heart daily and be wooed into wisdom, which will then give you greater sight to enjoy more, more wisdom. So what do you do here? I'm not just telling you to never sin again. I'm telling you to work your life so that you are constantly seeking His face. I'm telling you that you are loved with a love that is so overwhelmingly good that if you will stare it in the face, He will draw you to Himself. 
You just, you pick up that toddler and you hug him. You take him and distract him by going to play. And then eventually he starts to see your wisdom and understand for himself why to choose less candy rather than more. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray it together. Lord and Heavenly Father, will you help us in wisdom to start pulling that poison out? Lord, that foolishness would begin to seem foolish, that you would open our eyes. Lord, you, when you came, you opened the eyes of the blind. And you didn't just do that so that a couple individuals would have the benefit of sight. You did that to show what all of your ministry was driving towards which is opening our eyes, but not just opening our eyes to sunlight or flowers or or the faces of our friends and family, Lord, but to open our eyes to the face of you, to show us the one way that we can actually be satisfied, that our souls can actually delight, Lord. We pray that, that verse from Psalm 17, that, Lord, you would wake us up to the pleasure of your presence by having confidence in the fullness of your love. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.